Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, and to encourage you to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at ceo at reincanada.com. That is ceo at reincanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, with other people you know, and while you're at it, share it with people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, why not follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page? You can share us, like us, rate us, comment, and we're going to be there for you. So thanks again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is definitely appreciated. I want to preface the usual start to the show by simply stating that I am definitely inspired and excited to have my guests join me and to be able to shine a light on a topic that really up until this particular show is definitely outside the normal scope of subject matter for this podcast. And I'm also going to add that this was definitely a stretch for me. Perhaps I was getting comfortable in the norm of interviewing entrepreneurs and real estate investors, which is awesome, but this conversation is definitely not that. And I'm really happy that I took it on. I think it's going to make me a better interviewer. I want to start by saying that for some, this story may be somewhat disturbing. But really, my hope is that you come away as inspired and humbled as I was to consider how we face and overcome whatever adversities we may be bumping up against today or even in the future. I'll begin also by saying that there is so much I could share in an introduction of my guest, Norma Bastidas. However, I'm going to let that list of accomplishments and accolades unfold within our conversation. What I will open with is that Norma is a fierce competitor, and she's proven that as being a world record holder in both ultramarathons and ultra triathlons, meaning races of not only hundreds of kilometers, but thousands of kilometers. And if that isn't amazing enough on its own, you can also consider that prior to 2006, When she was about 40 years old, she was not only unknown as an athlete or even a runner, but she also didn't even know how to swim. Even all of that isn't really the story here. Yes, world records are definitely a significant and interesting part of her story and her journey, but it's only just a part. 
Her real story begins when she was 17 years old, when Norma was kidnapped in Mexico, and then later the victim of human trafficking. Should you think that is the story, you would only really be partially correct, believe it or not, because as you're about to hear, the real story is her journey to who she is today and the difference she now makes to others in the world. I ask that you join and listen in on my conversation with this seemingly ordinary individual who has achieved some extraordinary results. Enjoy. Norma Bastidas, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Very nice to meet you. Now, I want to preface the show for the listeners and and even with you a little bit is that who you are as a guest is outside of the scope of often where I would go. And, uh, but having said that, I believe, you know, who you are and what you've accomplished and what you've achieved and what you stand for is incredibly important. So I'm looking forward to the conversation and, uh, I just wanted to say it, I just want to preface it by saying I'm excited to have it, although it is outside the scope of the normal show. So thanks Norma. No, thank you. Uh, you know what? I'm very comfortable. We have to redefine success. That's oh, all it yeah. is. oh, here we go. In terms of any, I mean, the mentality, the attitude, how we approach things, it is no difference that if I was a millionaire or a billionaire, it's just simply that I have chosen to do it in a different way because it's what really makes me wake up and be excited. That's it. But we have to redefine success. But you cannot tell me that I am not successful. Just because my bank account doesn't reflect that, so I'm comfortable. I love that. I love that. Okay, and and because you know my introduction never does justice to who you are. You know, I want to hear from you. Like, so if I meet you for the first time, which is really what I'm doing right now, although we're looking at each other on Zoom, and I love that technology. Is the question I have for you is, you know, if I say to you, Norma, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? <laughs> That is a very tricky question. What do I do to pay my bills? What do I do, like my purpose? I mean, it is something that I am an activist. I advocate through sports. But, uh, you know, the way I do is, um, you know, I I just aim high. I, I seek a record and I break it or set a new record. And I use it as a platform to educate or to empower people they're feeling like you know the same there's 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 something that they feel and then I, I use it as a platform to show that anything is possible that it can be done and I sometimes uh, speak it uh, 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 you know and I also not exactly a runner I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an endurance athlete and I I go for records that I have to actually even to have to learn the sport to break the record and I succeed beyond belief, but it is to empower people that say, you know, with passion and dedication, genuinely, genuinely, anything is possible. And what happened is because I do have a very difficult background. I came from, um, you know, a very, very difficult upbringing and as a childhood. So, you know, it's really to grab everybody said, wake up. You know, I think I survived and I kind of lived for so many years just kind of feeling grateful that if I had a job and I paid my bills, that was enough. And one day I just simply just thought, no, I really want to pursue my dreams and I was going to find a way. And that's what I did. And that I just went for it. And uh, I'm still waking up with new dreams and new passions and new, you know, purpose in life, I guess. 
So let's start where you are today, and then we're gonna, you know, certainly I want to hear from you your story. And right now, you're a long distance ultra marathoner. Like we're talking races, four hundred miles. I think the record that you broke was four hundred and fifty on the highway, uh, yeah. the highway of tears. I think of tears. Yes, yes. and. But I- yeah, but I also broke the record of the Guinness World Record for the world longest triathlon. You know? Right. So, but you're you're into those endurance. That's the records that you're breaking is an endurance sport. Right. Okay, we could talk about that a little bit. I, I, you know, I'm 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 a little bit. Where do I want to go with that? But let's let's talk about your story and what led to the fact that you're in fact a world record holder. You're you're competing at a, a world level in endurance sports from marathons to triathlons and whatever else might be included in that. You're now a speaker. You showed up on the show for me because of me seeing you uh, on television speaking at the UN and your connection to our both our good friends and somebody who works with me, Cheryl Maycock. And the next thing you know, I got you on my show and I'm going, <laughs> okay, I got, okay, I'm really excited about this because I love the topic. I think it's incredibly important. I think your story is incredibly important aside from what you do to get the message out there. So let's share with us in your words, please, uh, Norma, what is, give us a little bit about your story because it's incredibly important. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm Mexican. I was born in the land of our cartels, Culiacan, Sinaloa. So from childhood, I mean, very difficult. You know, my parents didn't have a lot of money. My dad was an alcoholic, died very young and just left us, you know, my mom with five young children. And so we struggled for as long as I can remember, we struggled. But, you know, all of us, you know, the, the mentality that we had as a family was that as devoted as it was, we still found a way. We was we didn't succumb to the the you know, we didn't surrender to the circumstances that this is our life. We all of us set out to try to make something out of ourselves and to support ourselves, in, you know, helping each other. So the, the problem with my story was that, you know, you can have all the best intentions and work really, really hard, but also your surroundings determine if you're successful or not, or if it takes you on a different path. So unfortunately, uh, growing up in the land of the cartels, I was, uh, you know, suffer a lot of sexual violence from childhood, from couldn't get a break for the longest time. So I try to leave my hometown only to be kidnapped in Mexico City at age 17. Um, my brother was there. So I, all of a sudden, I did manage to escape before they, you know, unfortunately, it's the story that we hear often, women disappearing and, and either if they show up dead or not, not you know, not being found, I managed to escape. But now Mexico became a dangerous place for me. So I accepted a job offer as a 19-year-old to leave Mexico. And, you know, and I ended up being trafficked to Japan. Um, so, and it is, you know, like, obviously it took me many years to try to understand, but it is because of that when you don't have a safety net and you only, you only, and there's a lot of people taking advantage of vulnerabilities. So unfortunately, I ended up in Japan. And uh, I'm terrible under terrible circumstances. And, um, you know, I spent many years there. I managed to, you know, find a way out of that situation. And um, that's how I ended up in Canada. I eventually met my ex-husband and uh, met him in Japan and moved to Canada. Now, we talk about human trafficking. This is any, and you're being kidnapped. You were kidnapped in Mexico or it was an attempted kidnap? Yeah, Mexico City, I was kidnapped. And then I was, I was, 
traffic to Japan, which is basically kidnapped because yeah. it was a false sure. yeah, a, a job offer that didn't really exist. So once I'm in Japan, they took my passport. Uh, but of course, we love the stories of people that are kidnapped, uh, you know, um, and that's what happened to me. But I didn't recognize when I met somebody who tried to gain my trust and, you know, and presented herself as a friend and, you know, offered me a job in Japan. Wasn't scary. Was a woman. Seemed very, very nice. And then by the time I was in Japan, I had no passport. I had a debt to pay. So that was basically how human trafficking works. So were you literally kidnapped off the streets by the cartel in Mexico at the time? Like, Push your brother to, yeah. You know what? In in Kulikan was the cartels. Um, They would pick you up and they will, of course, sexually assault you. And in Mexico City, later I found out uh, when I escaped that they weren't the bad guys. They were the guys that were supposed to. They were supposed to. Uh, They were their children, wealthy kids of um, politicians. That's how they got their thrills. And I found out when I managed to escape, somebody helped me escape out of the compound that they had me. And uh, so I learned that he was um, kids of politicians and I never pursue any legal record because, you know, I remember just, you know, being terrified at 17 and finding my way home. Uh, and my brother was, you know, he's like, if, if you go to the police, they will know who you are. So, you know, never, never uh, occurred to me to press charges or anything because that's unfortunately, you know, uh, somebody uh, unfortunately is in so many so many countries money buys protection and we had not so. Now back at that time, so you're 17 years old. Was it arbitrary? Were you like walking down the street or were you targeted specifically? You know what? I don't know. Oh. I don't know if they had fallen. I don't know if they had you know, see me before. I just, uh, I was there, I was studying, I was taking aerobics instruction. I was taking, I wanted to be a certified aerobic. This is the time when Jane Fonda came with the aerobics craze. And um, so my mom, uh, my brother, you know, was living in Mexico City, said, why don't you come and take the course? And I was living with him. And um, so I took the same bus from his place to the school and back. So I don't know if they had seen me. I don't know if it was random. I Because like I said, I, I you know, obviously I stood up, um, you know, it's a big city, but you can tell who does, who's from province. And, um, so, you know, and I, they could tell also taking the bus and my clothing, obviously, um, you know, they were humble. So, you know. And that's probably, I was, I was, I don't know if it was just simply an opportunity or they had actually seen me several times. Sure. Yeah. Got it. And how long were you in, in those circumstances? No, you escaped from that. How long were you in that compound? You know what? It hadn't been probably, it was sometime around three to 4 a.m. that somebody that was related to the, 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 one of the guys that had me there, I was beaten and raped and, uh, beaten in a, I was in a, in a room and somebody just that he was related to one of them walked in and found me. And uh, once he f- saw me and he just, he's, you know, apparently his brother had done it before. He just said, I just can't believe he's, he's doing it again. So he just said, just, you know, help me escape and um, took me to a safe place and put me in a bus and, you know, had nothing. Like I said, I was just going home. So he, I didn't have the bus or I have no idea where I was. I still don't know. 
and he just put me, um, he gave me the money. He said, I'm so sorry for my brother and uh, just paid for my bus fare to go back to Mexico City. And uh, I mean, like I said, it's, 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 I mean, I suffer from trauma. So I, I do understand the, the bigger concept, but it's like trying to, you know, somebody asking me to read a manual when I'm drowning and then recite it, right? There's, there's such a big holes, but I do remember happening. I remember being in an area, I remember more than anything. Being in a, you know, this this brother taking me to a place and being terrified that if it's going to continue, but nothing happened. And he just put me in a a bus. And I remember more than anything being saved, being at a bus station and calling my brother, because this is before cell phones and anything. We're talking about 85, 86, and calling him. And I remember more than anything, the feeling I had when he was terrified, he's been calling all hospitals. He had no idea where it was. I remember more than anything where he said, where are you? And I said, I have no idea. Mm. I have no idea. He said, stop somebody walking by you. And oof, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's like that. I mean, the whole thing, like you just been holding on surviving. And, um, and he said, ask somebody who's walking by. And he told me where I was. And like I said, I, I drew a blank. I have no idea what's, what, a, what suburb of outside Mexico City I was. And then I just told him, he said, I know where you're arriving. I'll see you later. And now that, that was it. And he sent me home. He put me in a bus back to Culiacan. But the, the problem is that, you know, this isn't, we love to rescue, but we, lo- we don't like to do what's necessary to make sure that these things don't keep re- repeating itself. So I went back to Culiacan to the same circumstances. It's like a rational roulette. It's going to be the cartels picking you up when on your way. Like it just, you just live in such a constraints that I had to work. So sometimes my shifts won't end conveniently at a six, five. Once it gets dark and you have to walk home from, you know, whatever it is, that's when it happens. It will be randomly pick you up, whether it be the cartels or the or the federales picking you up. And sometimes they just take you for a joyride. It's like a Russian roulette, and it's just awful. And it is such a horrible circumstances. So you know. Yes, I understand that I, I accepted a job offer in Japan. And I don't understand a lot of people that say, why were you thinking? But there's people that, you know, I know a lot of people that went overseas modeling and doing all these things and nothing happened. But when you live under those circumstances and you are just not, you know, it's just such a terrible time, you know, terrible situation that when somebody comes and tells you that they're going to take you and that you're going to have a completely different life and this is, you do want to believe it because what are the options? Yeah. So you're, you're 17 or 18 years old at that time. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, you know, when, we, when I went to Japan, I was, yeah, I was 17 when that happened yeah. and I was there about a year and a half and at 19, that's when somebody said that they were recruiting girls to go to Japan and it was, you know, in the, my neighborhood, obviously. So you were there as, as a model. And I, and I think that's, that's important to recognize is that you took the job offer in Japan. I mean, it got you out of a very unsafe environment or what you felt was unsafe, you know, to your point, Russian roulette. If you're playing that game every day and you see a path out of playing that game called Russian roulette into and, and something. I, I'm, I'm generally, I'm generally working on the industry. I mean, I, sure. I am, I have a TV show. I have, you know, nothing major. It was just a, a small you know, given the, I was on TV, given the updates to what's in town, like a, you know, five minute segment saying, Hey, you know, this weekend we're going to have this festival and stuff. So I am absolutely in that environment. So it's not unrealistic 
to think that that cannot be possible, right? So you go to Japan, and then because human trafficking is so, I guess, beneath the surface, it's so clandestine, and people don't really know what's going on. You know, so I'm asking questions, Norma, from trying to wrap my mind around what that really looks like. Because to your point earlier in your story, you know, you're befriended by what sounds like a and maybe a little older individual, a female, that says, hey, you're beautiful and there's an opportunity here. And gosh, you know, you want to model and we, you know, we can get that handled and, you know, come along with me. And that's all a front to actually get mm-hmm. you into the the path, the tunnel called human trafficking. Uh, is that is that an accurate description? It is. Um, it is. It is very much. And it's a grooming process. It wasn't, you know, by the time you get there, it's just, you know, I mean, I'm convinced that this is something that is good for me. I'm convinced and it's, you know, from they, they start, you know, kind of, the, the, I mean, and, uh, it's very difficult to understand the grooming process, but it is uh, somebody who's, who's earning your trust, somebody who's giving you what you need, which is, you know, telling you the protection. Also, I'll be able to support my family, which at that point, at 17 years old, I was the highest earner. I've been having a little bit of a TV show and I was uh, teaching, um, I was working at a gym. So I am the highest earner in my family. And, you know, my mom is a single parent. Uh, you know, my two brothers are trying to finish their university, so they couldn't be working full time. I was the only one working full time. My sister was already had her first child. So it's awful, but that's a responsibility that exists. And, um, you know, that you can't, you can't eliminate it. How can I be safe, but also making sure that my family you know, still continues to have something to eat. And, um, you know, and, and they do, they just presented itself. And by the time I got to Japan and, um, you know, it was like, it's, it, yeah, you will be going to a bar, but, but it seemed more like it's a hostess. Right. So in my mind, it presented like, it's going to be like studio 54 and it's going to be the, the rich and famous and you're going to be there, you know, sitting people walking them because it, that's, this is the eighties. Sure. Excess and and so it, it's not a scary thought that I would be like in Studio 54 when all the wealthy people come and you'll be taking them to the VIP. And that's what I was presenting. You'll be a hostess for the VIP club. And I'm thinking, this is fantastic. I'm going to meet all these wealthy people. So, but that's what I'm saying that when, when that happened and, and, and it happens in a way that is fast. Within three months, I had a passport I've never had and I was out of the country. And uh, it wasn't by myself. It was two other girls and it was the three of us. Once you get, you know, and then you don't see that person is not there anymore. The one that asks you to go, then somebody, uh, you know, somebody picks you up and then you go. So you're, you don't have a, you know, you don't know who to connect with. And then like so many people, I don't understand the language. And then they separate us. It's like, you know, all of a sudden we're in the same room and all of a sudden everybody's gone. And you, and there's one person responsible for translating for you, for feeding you, for your safety. So you bond with that person. So within a week, you know, I'm just taken to a bar and said, this is going to be, you know, a workplace. And that really is when it starts to sink in. There's something. But at this point, you know, this is human trafficking wasn't understood. It was, you know, 80, 86. So I'm, I don't understand it as human trafficking. I understand that I, and what I believe is I got myself in a, in a situation and they said, you have, you owe us a lot of money. And it, I know it seems crazy. And I know that now as a person, as I'm Canadian, I have a loss and I understood. I, and, but even back then I could have gone into the embassy and I want 
point, I think at one point when they beat me up, I went to the police and they sent me back. I had signed a contract. Now I understand it. I was there willingly, according to everything that I had signed. So I have absolutely no way of going home without a passport and I had a debt to pay. You just simply surrender to to, to you surrender. There's nothing I could have done. I know it seems crazy, but that's how it is. And that's human trafficking. A lot of people are in debt. It's, it's bonded to it by, by debt. And that's what happened to me. You know, what I'm hearing in this, Norm, is a couple things. You know, number one is that human trafficking is incredibly sophisticated, number one. Yes, yes. But my nature is evaluating and assessing and how I hear you. I'm actually hearing you justify a little bit how it happened for you. And yet I ask the question, at 17 years old, why would you even be expected to know that? So I feel like yeah. there's a, you're beating yourself up a little bit for not being smarter or, or being more sophisticated. And I'm and I'm and I'm asking myself as a 17 year old girl. I mean, you you should be naive. You shouldn't have to have that on your plate. Yes. And here you are, and and you speak for many innocent people, innocent women, that at 17 years old, that we should believe or that they should believe that they should have known better, which just blows my mind. Right. And I think I think my saying is because once you have that mentality, I went out every day. Like, it's not like I was in chains in a room, right? I went out every day, like, you know, uh, whatever it was. First was a, a company, but after that, I was out by every day just getting food for myself and coming back. And willingly go into the place. But I, I kind of, that's where it goes home. That once you understand your situation and once you're like, it's like, I think somebody says that about chaining a, a, um, an elephant when it's baby, but not when it's, it's older. And that really is what's happened. Once it drills home that this is the way it has to be and you have absolutely no recourse. That's when I really, and that's where a lot of people get confused. It's people that knew me back then. It's like, you went out. I was like, yes, that doesn't mean anything because of the situation and that's what does. So, in, and why I like to talk about it is because we always assume that human trafficking, you know, it's, it looks at a certain way. They're chained and they're beaten. And, and that does happen, unfortunately. And because of the work I do, I do meet cases like that. And, and you know, unfortunately that's happened, but the majority is not that. It's, it's people that you think, I mean, there's, uh, you know, servitude of working uh, at a you know plantation or anywhere and then willingly go home and then coming back but that doesn't mean that they're not being paid they're being treated you know and in my case I was asked to do things that I never agreed to and I was forced into it that itself constitutes human trafficking and but that's kind of I want to I want to make sure that everybody understands it really well so we identify all victims and we we love to you know, we love to save the perfect victim, but everybody, whether you agree with how they got there or not, or what the life, like I happened to be a good girl when I went there, kind of relatively, I was working supporting. That doesn't mean that I should have been safe and not others. It does not matter if I used to party and drink and then find myself there. So I think it just, we need to level up playing here and make human trafficking something that is illegal and everybody, should, you know, and we should Make sure that doesn't happen to anybody. That's it. Yeah, and I and I I see too is that you know what we we understand. So you know, obviously, people that are listening to your story may be in fact, well, why didn't you just leave? Of course, you can't leave the country. Passports, all those things. The other part of it is people will ask that same question of 
of women who are in a marriage of physical abuse, you know, even mental or, or emotional abuse. And they go, why do you stay? And, you know, a common answer is at least I know, I feel safe there in terms of, I know what I'm expecting. And if I walk out that door, I'm on my own. I don't know what to expect. So none of that makes sense to somebody who doesn't have those circumstances doesn't have those of that environment and isn't looking at the world through that set of filters. Right. And, and I think that that is such an important part of it. Now you look at the subject of human trafficking from my perspective. And one of the, why I think it's so important is, I mean, we're in Canada. I mean, I, I can't believe that it'd be happening in Canada, but now that I've listened to your story, I'm going yeah. with a degree of sophistication. It's probably a good chance that is that in fact happening in Canada. It is. I mean, absolutely. I mean, where you have the indigenous communities, I mean, what are your options, right? It, and it, that, that's the problem, too. It is every, you know, we understand that the reservations are, you know, because of so many, I mean, we can talk about that. It, it, that's not for me to talk about, obviously. Uh, but, you know, reservations have issues, but it is more dangerous for an indigenous woman to leave the reservation. That's when the real, the, the most, you know, the most dangerous place becomes is outside and it is kind of that's i mean it still happens here the demographic or who's the one that is most vulnerable and and then you know the most violence happens are different circumstances and here will be the indigenous communities yeah, in canada well i think you make such a great point because whatever the view of the world is in terms of indigenous and what we think are you know what should be what politics are around uh, the indigenous community and reservations and all, all of that, all, whatever your belief in that is, you know, whether you think they, you know, that we owe indigenous land rights or whether we don't, that's to me is primarily politics. But when you dig down and you get into the actual humanity of it, that doesn't matter. You know, women, you know, indigenous women or Mexican women yes. or, you know, born in Canada or Poland, it doesn't matter. Whatever the politics are, nobody deserves or should be a victim to that, or we want to see as victims. So I think that's really cool. Now, exactly. thank you for backstory. I think it's a great topic. Now, a quick question here, Norma, is that in interviews, I mean, you've been interviewed, I'm sure, hundreds of times. Are you normally speaking to a female uh, interview or male, or is it a pretty solid mix of both? It's, it's both. Mm -hmm. It's both. I think this is not something that, you know, because we are all consumers, male, female, we all consumers of, of anything that if it's, it, it doesn't have to be, I mean, exploitation is exploitation in uh, human trafficking is human trafficking, but everything you, you, we have to raise the standards in terms of, you know, uh, you know, this is okay. Uh, you know, at least I'm not raping you. We have to, once we raise the standards, then we do not, you know, we couldn't imagine that those horrible things would happen. And I mean, male and females, I'm always trying making them understand why this is not such a clear, and, and, and I don't know if, you know, like I said, it's such a complicated, especially sex traffic, it's such a complicated thing. I mean, we do agree, all of the, all of us agree in terms of, you know, um, you know, sex with minors, it's illegal and it's wrong. But in terms of prostitution, it's a sex work and all that nuances, it's a, such a difficult. And I like to talk about it because, you know, like for me, my experience is different and not everybody's traffic in that, in that environment. And I do not want to make it safe for the women, whether you make it illegal or legal. But I just want to, that if you will really going to prostitution, make sure that this isn't a choice, that it's an empowered choice. So make sure that there's, 
in terms of, I mean, the, the violence that happens, the, the, the murder rate, that's in anything. Let's say that, you know, you, you prefer to think it as a sex work. We won't accept the circumstances or any other job. Why do we think it's okay? So, or, you know, if you like to think the prostitution should be legal, then you have to make sure that, you know, that as you're making it legal, the ones that always pay the higher price and violence or anything else, it is the, 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 you know, sex workers or prostitutes, however, side of the, the argument. And that really is where I want to. And I, I, I think I was in, in Paris and I was addressing and I was telling them in terms of it is not a choice if your life, if your meal depends on it, if you have a mental health, if you have an addiction and that's your only way to get it. That is not an empowered choice. And it shouldn't feel like because you're a man, it's your right and you have the money and, and, you know, it's not a transaction as simple like that. So I would like more dignity in terms of whether you don't do it or if you do it, do it with as much dignity as you can, as you would do with any other transaction. And I think there was a man who chased me down the halls after my conference. He said, I've never understood. I was always arrogant thinking it's like, well, you know they put themselves in that situation. And he said, I will approach it differently. He said, I'm not even sure that I would ever pay for sex ever again. And I was like, thank you. And I think it should be like that. It should be, I mean, we do it for everything else. We, you know, drinking and driving, be responsible. And we talk about it, but we don't discuss something that it has implications. And it has such a, like I said, in my case, I was treated like it was my fault. And I should be so lucky because at least I wasn't being murdered by the cartels. And I was, for years, that's what my life was worth. And for years, I had to deal with that, that this is, I should be so lucky to be used, but not murder, you know? And that is just such a horrible, horrible thing. And we continue, and we're still doing it. Tell me about the Highway of Tears and why you chose to run that marathon or that ultra marathon why what was behind that now i know that you're running in that and give us give me some story about why you became this now i want to qualify something here now you're a young lady but you're a young only slightly under 50 lady and yes. over 50 <laughs> oh you're over 50, 50 well, now okay yeah. now i really feel like a sloth okay <laughs> so i think that you know i want to make that clear i mean we were talking about the 80s uh earlier and what it was and you know of course i was uh i was in the 80s very very much at, at that point in my life lots of stories to share around that but tell me about the marathon you started running how many years ago and it really you have a story behind why you started and then where it yes. went to Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I was already in Canada. I went back to school. I, by the way, I mean, it, it, like I said, I should be here because I speak three languages. I went back to to school and uh, learn English here in Canada. It is my third language, not my second, you know, and went back to school and finish up business, uh, business administration diploma at state in Alberta. And I was, I transformed, you know, you know, I was ready to, to get my, my bachelor's. And I was working full time, studying at night, um, on track to receive uh, a promotion because I was just, you know, I was said I've always been very disciplined. So I was, you know, already a single parent raising my kids. And my my oldest son was eleven, and I got a phone call that absolutely changed everything because I had created a life that it was comfortable. And I had, you know, I was providing for my kids. And then I received a phone call that my son was at the hospital because I believe he broke his nose. He ran into a wall. And test 
after test trying to figure out what happened is, uh, you know, it was discovered that he's, he was gone blind. He, it's called something that's called Conrad dystrophy. And within a few months, I mean, it was just such a shock on so many levels because, I mean, I have began so many times and I was exhausted by then because it wasn't me. This is happening to my son. I lost my job. I'm using my savings. I was responsible like three months because that's how long it takes you to get it to the next job. But this is not something I could just, you know, fix in three months. This is it was, this was something that my son was going to have to deal with. We were going to have to deal with it as a family forever. And that's really when I found myself alone in a foreign country without funny, without any family. And, uh, you know, I just didn't want to go to why, you know, why is it still, because it's not fair. Why not? Like why, you know, why should I be better than anybody else? But I really had a hard time finding that the, it's okay. We're going to be okay. So I started to run in the middle of the night. My mom came from Mexico and, um, you know, to look, to help me, uh, take care of my sons. And, uh, but I didn't want them to hear me crying. So I, and, you know, it was either vodka at 3am or going for a run. And I knew that addiction, that is something that I've done in my twenties that he, I, you know, and I knew that I couldn't do it anymore because I needed to make sure the history didn't repeat itself. I was sexually assaulted when I was 11 years old by a family member, when my mom became a single parent. And I knew that there's no way that I could turn out, you know, that I could tune out because my kids needed me to be present. But I had a hard time smiling and I had a hard time waking up in the morning saying, we're going to do these. So I went for a run at 3, 4 a.m. And it is funny. If somebody had told me that I would be running on the streets in Alberta minus, you know, 25 at 3 a.m., I would have told them that. But, you know, once you push those boundaries, so what's possible, they keep spending. Pretty soon, it was no problem running at 3, 4 a.m. And the difference was that I felt better when I came home. I did. It was different than addiction. The numbs everything. It was, you know, and, and it just really how it started. Um, you know, I had a friend who was training for Boston, uh, and she said, you know, wow, like, you're running really well. If you qualify, I'll take you. And that's all I needed. I needed something that I couldn't control. I couldn't control everything else. That was not up to me what happened. That was not up to me how the rate of progression of my son's condition, it was not up to me, but it was up to me to lace up and to train. So I went to the internet and I downloaded a training program to run a marathon. And, uh, and I did, and I stuck to it. And, uh, I ran my first marathon, Calgary marathon. And, uh, about eight months after I started running, I was 39 and uh, qualified for Boston. And it was such a shock because it was like, what else do I have? of potential in me that I have not given myself opportunity just simply because I believe people told me that it was, you know, it's difficult and you start small. And I thought, you know what, from now on, I am going to find my limits. And I was having a great time and I wanted to do another race, but I didn't have a lot of money. So I couldn't just fly to another marathon somewhere else. So I again went to the internet and tried to find a race that was close to me in, in August because that was a week that I had off. And, uh, and then the Canadian death race came out and it was 125 kilometers and I signed for it and went for it. And it was the most painful, awful thing I've ever done. I only run a marathon in my life and it was three weeks after that. And it was awful. And I remember starting and thinking, who does this? And why am I here? You know, but it was such a thrill of being there. And I felt, and, and, you know, opposite of what people think that it's, it's not a death wish, just cheaper, faster ways to really kill yourself. <laughs> These ones, I mean, I'm like, why would I want to spend 
hours a day training. It is the most alive I felt. And it was such a wonderful feeling. And it was everything. And I fell in a creek and uh, I got hypothermia. So I was disqualified. And they're bringing me down in an 18. And all I could think in my head is like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is it. This feeling that I had, that it is within me that this is what I had. So that's what I did. I went to Boston, better my time. And I went to do, and, and the next year after that, I came back to the Canadian death race and placed ninth female overall and won my age group. And I did the other series and did my first international race. I just went on a, you know, like, it was like, instead of running away, I was like, this is the life. You know, I don't know. Things happen, circumstances. But this is, this is something that I just, I'm not just going to live small. I'm going to ask for it. And I'm going to work hard and go for things. Where did the activist part of that show up? Like, when did you, when did you go, okay. You know, because yeah, you connect, yeah. you connected the dots. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I connected. It was, and everything was just simply when you do something that you do it because you, it's a passion. This is not something I ever anticipated that I was going to have a platform that I'm going to be a public figure. But it's just simply something that when I went to the the Canadian Death Race, I just my son was back at school. Obviously, that's why I went to the race. He was doing great. And Canadian National Institute for the Blind, the CNIB, was fantastic. I just called them and I said, I have absolutely no idea how to navigate this. This is new for us. And the doctors are great, but they're like, this is forever. Come back every six months or a year. What do I do in between? So Canadian, uh, the CNIB was fantastic. And, you know, they brought my son and myself and, you know, taught us, um, you know, how to, the, the things that we needed to do. All my son was, wanted was to be, you know, to be back with his friends. He didn't want to be, have a different life. He wanted to continue being in the place where he was with the, with the accommodation. So once uh, the CNIB sent uh a list of the things the school could do. He was back at school, happy. I was back working and, uh, and I wanted to do something for them. So I, when I signed for the Canadian death race, I emailed I've, I've five friends and I said, pledge me. I know I'm not going to finish because I've only been running for a uh, short time, but pledge me for every kilometer. That way it will motivate me to run more than a marathon. And instead of five friends, I got back about 25 and people were pledging me not to go. We give you a hundred dollars, but please don't go. <laughs> you can go. Like, and they were, but you know what? It made me angry. And it was my best friend. The one that told me to go to Boston, they came back and said, you shouldn't go. People die in kidney failures. And I was like, how dare you? I finally, finally, after crying for six months, I'm finally excited about something. And you want to take that away? I'm like, uh-uh. I was like, instead of downloading how to die, help me download things of how not to die. Please, you know, and I fundraised instead of $200, my goal was $200. I did $3,500 because people just, it was the craziest thing ever heard. Not a lot of people, but what happened too, it became a celebration. My son was in a condition that needed to be more, it was more a celebration. It's like, how's he doing? And, and he was doing, he was dealing with it with so much dignity. And it's a thank you of those organizations to help us get there. Right. Nothing had changed. He still has a permanent condition and the people weren't afraid to call me to pick up the phone and said, how's the training going? You know, how's your son? So they weren't afraid to do it. They weren't like running away from me at the grocery store because I would probably break down crying. This time we were like, wow, you know, excited. 
the biggest difference was that I started blogging because I needed to, for the people that were pledging me, I started blogging of my training and my craziness of my training. Basically, I'm going to sit down on the couch and not move because I don't want my legs tired because I'm about to run 125 kilometers. But once I start blogging, I start hearing from people all over the world and I pour my soul because this is something that I'm just going at it with, with, I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if I'm in the right path. I you forget that this reaches everywhere in the world. And there was a lot of people that start kind of saying, you know what? And I think I heard from one couple that said, we just, we're a young couple. We just had our first son and he was born blind. And we have cried so much until we came across your blog and, and seeing you. And I post pictures of us, you know, moving on and, and said, seeing you and your son so happy gave us, it gave us hope. That really was a big thing. The house, like, you know what? You don't deny it. You don't hide from it. You don't pretend it doesn't exist. You do. You talk about it. You find a way as a community, as a family. And that really is how it started. And then pretty soon, you know, newspapers call me for interviews. And I am, if I am nothing, I am passionate. Like, that's the one thing I went in. You know, I can tell you I did many things wrong, but it was always the best of my abilities. So that's how it started. You know, the talking about sexual violence was much later once I did a documentary for Oprah Winfrey Network, and it was called Extraordinary Mothers. And they put me as a, portrayed me as an amazing mother, brave. And then I was just thinking, coming home, and I received an award. And I can remember coming home, and my son was already 18, and he was doing great. And I was like, I'm not brave. I've not spoken about something that is so shameful. You know, like, I don't want to be given an award. And then being shamed for being the same person, right? So, you know, and that's where I would say that we have to really define success is because this time I went for something and it paid off big. I became an athlete and I became a sponsor athlete. But when I went to Japan, I took the same chance and it didn't pay off. But it was the same. I was I was going trying to find a better, better something. And that's what I always said to redefine success. What I did and in, in the effort I put was the exact same mentality is this crazy dream that you have that doesn't make sense to anybody. If anybody have told me that I was going to do documentaries about, you know, abstract things that I was going to think, I did the 777 run for sight, seven ultra, seven continents, seven months, and to celebrate my son and uh, fundraise over 250000 for the CNIB Operation Isaiah Universal and Foundation Fighting Blindness. And it was something abstract, and it became such a big success. But that's the same thing of anything. But sometimes it doesn't pay off. But that doesn't make us less successful. It just means that there were circumstances they weren't ready. That's it. You know, in the context of the everyday millionaire, what as the show has evolved and shifted, in, and it has, and my guests are... Very, you know, they're successful to the degree that they're successful. Many are are certainly financially uh, successful, no doubt about that. But there's not a lot of time spent on the financial accomplishment. I always looked at it from the context of seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. But I like to focus on the journey. I like to focus on, you know, the fact that in spite of the adverse challenges or the adversity that people face or the circumstances or whatever it might be, they can emerge and come out the other side of it and have whatever degree of success you want to measure that as, you know, and, and in your case, you don't measure it financially, but you can easily measure it in terms of the impact you're having on the world. 
and the impact you're having on the world and the message that you're getting out there on an important topic. And so, you know, I find the definition of success is everybody's to own by themselves on their own. And the challenges we face is when we're measuring our success against what others define or try and define for us. And I know in one of the, you know, one of the blogs that I, I read that you talked about was your frustration or annoyance or whatever the word might be that you would use. I won't put words in your mouth around some of the magazines, the fitness magazines, because you live in that world. And yes. yet all of yes. these, all of these people are, you know, six packs and they're beautiful and, and, you know, if you're not that, then, you know, so, and I know for you, who's a proven athlete, like, I mean, let's face it at 50 plus and you're running ultra marathons and you're beautiful and you're doing all of the things. I mean, but you're, you're to your own statement is I'm not that person in that magazine. It drives me crazy that I would even be put in that same sphere of comparison. Yeah, I, I don't know how. I, yeah, I call it the pornification of sports, I think. It is just such a thing that I went to. And this is very true. I went through, you know, like the, one of the most liberating things about going to do the ultras. And, and certainly when I went to my first international race was living in the Sahara desert in Egypt uh, without showers for a week. And it was just such a wonderful thing. And I mean, growing up in a, in a country that is very much image conscious right like it just you know the whole goal is about marrying well and about you know maybe maybe if you're lucky you'll be missed universe and that's such a you know and i i never measure up there was nothing i could do they were just simply so many things because you know we we a lot of it celebrate somebody being born a certain way and then working a little bit hard to to make it a perfection but you are certainly you're celebrating something for being born not not it's not it's not earned i mean it's earned by but there's absolutely not nothing i can do to change my body to be a six you know five eleven kim kardashian like, there's no natural like there's no amount of squats that i can do it is i'm born and, and all i can do is is you know but that's what i love doing the sports that i was doing it didn't matter it was about results and that's what it was it was supposed to my you know the ability it was my ability and my you know the amount of training and my performance that determines success or not and then all of a sudden everybody started which is wonderful a lot of people now are ultra runners now when i started certainly not 15 years ago but um you know and all of a sudden started and it was wonderful it was like welcome we all you know we're big we're small we're tall we're, and it was just and then all of a sudden we started to I mean, I think it was the day when I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw the before and after picture and the before picture looked like me now. And I was like, oh, when did I became the, the thing that you have to fix? And I mean, <laughs> I have broken the Guinness World Record for the World Longest Triathlon. And it was like, I swear to God, it was just like, you have to be kidding me. That's my body right now. And you tell me that's undesirable. And if I cut down on all these things and pay, buy all these products, and then you can be the after, which was certainly more, you know, like had more muscle definition or anything. But it was just that. I mean, and then I started looking more into the fact that even the, the, the blind sides that I had, that have we really... You know, if you're overweight, are you really less unhealthy? You know, less healthy? Are you really? Like, and then I start talking into reading, but not necessarily. There's so many things you can, and then I start, the more I start to reject. So I eliminated a lot of things on my, on my, because I did 
I did question myself because I was, I mean, that was the one thing that it was giving me happiness was the fact that I was an athlete, but all of a sudden I was like, but I don't look like that. So I started to cut my intake and, and started to, you know, my performance went down because I was like, oh, I got to read, uh, got to eat less bread, which I love pasta and bread and pizza. I mean, that was a thing that gave me joy. And um, so, and then because I, then I needed to have abs, but abs serve no purpose. The muscles serve a purpose, right? Core, strong core is strong person, but not necessarily that they wash for abs. They have no purpose in terms of races. And that's when I started to just really eliminate things that make me feel ashamed of who I was and just kind of start questioning everything. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Question everything. You know, it's such a, an interesting conversation to have because, you know, I've been, I've trained myself for gosh, you know, 30 years. And although I'm not a, a record holder, record breaker, I've always trained because I enjoy the physicalness of it. Like you, I ran, but more of it was just, it was more meditative for me, more cathartic. You know, it was that way. Um, you know, I certainly loved to train, but there is a debate that I've had on many occasions, but you actually opened up a door to a third part of that. And that's, a, it's not even a debate. It's a discussion I've had with friends who talk about fitness versus health. Okay. And you can be very, very fit, but it doesn't even mean you're healthier. And I, you can run marathons and I yes, can go for yes. a walk five days a week. My health is, is awesome, but I'm not as fit as you. But what you've added to this in this conversation, what I got is there actually, there's a third component of it, which is the, the view, the look, the, okay, the chiseled abs, the, you know, the bulging biceps or, or quads, whatever that might mean. That's a, actually a cosmetic picture. It doesn't mean, not, number one, it doesn't mean you're more fit. As a matter of fact, fitness-wise, you could be just crap and look like that. And it doesn't even mean health. You, you, you know, that doesn't represent healthiness. It, people have a picture of that's what healthy is and that's what fit is. And that's just not the truth. You can have abs and you can have all that. And people say, well, you don't get that by not working. And although that's true, to your point, what you learned, even in you're not listening by not listening to your body, your race times came down because you were actually uh, not, you know, giving it the nutrition that it needed. That didn't work. So it's 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 interesting to really look at that concept of working out and, and training and all the rest of it. So and I, we digress, but anyways, but that's what I got from that <laughs> as well. <laughs> yes. But it's true. I mean, I, I mean, it's true. I, I do train long hours and like right now I'm crazy training as well, but I, I'm fitter, not healthier. Mm -hmm. That's a completely different thing. The health, it, it, it's a lot had to do with going to the doctor, looking at what's going on in my body. You know, I do come from like, like I said, my dad has, you know, um, my dad died at 41 of a massive heart attack. So I go to the doctor tailored to me. He's like, you stay away from meat. And of course, to have abs, it's like eat nothing but meat and two, you know, two strings of celery. And that's it. And I mean, it's like, I would die of a massive heart attack if I went, and, yeah, very attractive body, but it's still dead. So that's where I just kind of went. It's like, this is, and, and you know, there's also a need learning about us, you know, I'm fitter in my body, if I want to continue doing the, you know, like asking my body to perform at a level that it's performing, then there's certain nutrition that it has a requirement. 100%. So I went from while listening to listening to the experts tailored to me, what am I after? And then that's what I went. But, you know, like I said, it just such, it went from 
everybody welcome to, you know, let's just make sure, like, let's take it to a level that is dangerous. And I mean, I think it's fine if that's who you want. I mean, I think if that's your goal, it is to have apps, go for it, but go for it with open, with wide eyes wide open. And a healthy right? mindset, a healthy it. way of doing it. Yes. Okay. So let's go back. I want to go back because, um, you know, there's such an important message that I know that you have. And I want to ask you this question because, you know, there's so many places for me to enter this conversation. I want to know about your mindset. I want to know what drives you. And I understand a fundamental thing, which is that your passion is as much as it is for running your, or for ultra, what do you want to call it? Ultra marathons, ultra competitions, setting world records, whatever we want to call that. It's driven by a pretty profound why. And we hear that topic and we hear people say, know your why, know your why. You got really clear on your why. And I think it shifted maybe marginally because there was a time where it was about your son. It was about making sure that your son was looked after and that you were emotionally healthy and there for your son to support that. And that's part of what started it. But then it's really become about you were able to human trafficking, the sex trade. I mean, you really expanded the why into a big deal. And you said, I'm going to turn up the volume. And, and so is that a, is that a fairly accurate statement in all of this, Norma? It is. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that uh, to some level I will always be an adventure. Like I, I really, once I discovered, I went, I, I think it's, I didn't give myself an opportunity to discover because it was something that was frivolous. You didn't do that. You are a serious person. And I think my first blog was Mexican running wild because my mom was like, when are you going to just Stopping running wild and 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 be serious about it. So I went. I was like, I was like, I went through it all. Like, and I lost it. This is my time, and I just went for it. I was like, nope. And and but it, but not, and I fell in love. I just it was like I said, I fell in love with nature and being out, and you know, it, it, it is something. Now, if I was going to do publicly, I didn't want you know the beast mode. Look at me. It was more like, okay, if you're going to pay attention. And it was something that it was because when I turned into it, it was such a personal time for me of, of grief, of not, you know, like coming to terms with everything that is happening. Because I always ask my question when I find myself, you know, I, I come from depression and all that is like, why is it affecting me? What can I do? And he's just kind of trying to find an outlet that I can do that it is a positive outlet. So that happened. But even, even now it just becomes such a lifestyle that I can be happy and I'm still there and I'm still praying. You know, like I said, I, the, the two are definitely, because I know that I do, I have a tendency to dream big and to want to do such a big things. I just wake up and dream. And, you know, right now I'm thinking I want to row across the Pacific ocean. And it's just something that makes me happy. And it makes me wake up scared in a way that I know that if I'm not focused and doing what I need to do, that's not going to happen. It's not, you know, the running comes, you know, by now I've been doing it. I might not be the best, get the best placing on the race, but I can still pull it off. You know, and those are the things that wake me up to the core. Like I want to be like, I want to wake up in the morning and, uh, and it is just, I naturally look at things and, you know, and that's where I, 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 I geared towards it. Now I do suffer because of my, the way that I advocate and all that, and people find me and they have stories and I always, you know, want to take it. Sometimes I want to quit, but I always ask myself, is it fear 
or it's not something that doesn't, I'm not passionate. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's fear of being open because obviously the more I talk about these, the more the people that affected me or the people that, that were the criminals find me and I have gotten the threats. And I sometimes, you know, I'm like, is that speaking? Because that's what happened for so long. It was silence. It was the ability to silence the government, myself, families, that that enabled to those things to happen over and over again. So I want to be as honest as possible. If it's fear of that, I just try to lean into the discomfort longer and longer, say, you know what? I would not, a single moment of my life will be, uh, you know, doing be victimized anymore for those things. So now, I mean, that takes courage, but that's what it makes me be a healthier person to be able to enjoy, to remarry, to have a good relationship with my kid. Those are the things that enable me the growth as a person, because that's what I want for myself. Now, there's also another thing as I'm pursuing these, the truth for myself, what can I do to be the best possible myself? Because the version that I, where I come from is nothing. I had it. I mean, I couldn't even, you know, I was told of how, what to wear, how to go out. Like I went so far from victim to be a champion of something. But then I also find people that find me and they see me and they are in the, on the same space that I was unable to get out, doubting themselves. That, and then they see me as big as possible, that they just reach out and say, this is where I am. And from now on, I will not accept it. That's what it signifies. And being able to give somebody that, you know, somebody who's about to lose hope, hope makes me want to continue to do it publicly. Now, I can fight this battle privately, but doing it publicly, it, it, it sends so many positive messages. Speaking of positive messages, and my mind is racing where to go with this conversation because I don't want it to end number one. So I'm not going to hurry that, <laughs> but I, I really do want to, uh, you know, hit on a couple of points and it's easy to go, well, what's the psychology of getting out of bed and running every day and doing all the rest of that. But I want to go back to a, a different conversation. And when you shared your story for the first time of, and even to, to this day of, you know, sexual abuse in your own home, kidnapped, than being in the world of human trafficking. And I don't know if you call that a sex slave or whatever that might be. So you talk about the shame behind all of that. Have you overcome that or does there, is there still a place for you to, that that still exists, Norma? Absolutely. It shame exists, but it's not, it doesn't come like, Hey, here's shame. And that's what I'm saying about, uh, you know, like fear, fear, shame that I don't deserve it, fear that it was somehow, if I keep talking, it's going to come out that it was my fault, right? Like, I always, because I mean, that's that's really, and it is not something that it is my fault. It is being affected by somebody. And I think, I, I think somebody that, you know, they might ask the question, why didn't she just call home? That's shame in that, in how it affects me and, and going, you know, going to and crying and maybe having a drink that night. And that's shame because of how it affects me instead of sending up saying, you know what, you know, like in, in having a, not being able to affect me, you don't understand this obviously, you know, and let me tell you why, you know, having no effect and that is shame. So shame still, and that's why it's the fear. The fear is the shame that still lives in me that maybe, you know, and it is shame of being like a mother. Mothers aren't supposed to be 
you know, going to Antarctica, mothers are, and it is, we live in such a shame of what it, and now I'm, you know, little by little, I'm like, tell my kids, like, they're like, you shouldn't be going. I'm like, excuse me, I am a professional. I've been doing it and I know, you know, I am as prepared as anyone, and I am your mother, but I am also a human being and I am my own person. So let me sit down with you and tell you how am I going to pull it off successfully, right? But, and that's where, I mean, it's like, we have the shame of so, on so many levels and that still exists, but I need to be honest. And that's what I keep asking me of sometimes I will really one day, and I mean, I think when I come back from one of those records or when I'm like, you know, seven hours into my training, I come home to feel and I have to do something else. I just, they don't like, please let me just lose interest on these and just, just, you know, be excited about going to yoga for an hour a day. Like, please get me there. Please, I want to be there. But that's not who I am. And that's okay. That's who you are. But that's not who I am. But you know, a lot of it is wanting to quit is because it gets hard. It gets hard in my personal relationship. You know, I can say that, you know, my husband isn't exactly thrilled with it. And it is a lot of, you know, but that's, that's like I said, a shame of being, you know, what's a mother supposed to be? What's a wife supposed to be, you know? And we do have it on the movies that, you know, she's such a successful woman and she falls in love and then softens. And all of a sudden she's at home cooking. <laughs> get here so when I come completely unchanged I'm like okay you know and I am who I am whether the whole world is with me or with you know against me I am who I am and that's what that's that's the whole thing of putting people labels on people but also shame so tell me because there's very good chance given the world that we live in today that there's women uh that are going to be listening to this podcast that have had, you know, sexual abuse, that they've got a secret around something, what guidance would you give them or advice would you give them if they are holding on to that secret or if they feel like it's not right to disclose? Is there is there guidance that you would give or advice that you would give from that perspective, Norma? You know, it's, it's not something that I say you should. I think you should find somebody who's going to help you and talk about it, a therapist, a, a priest, somebody who you know that is qualifying to help you because, you know, I would never recommend, because like I said, I, when I spoke about it publicly it was a personal reason. It was a personal decision and it was incredibly hard. Like I have never been as isolated in my life as the first time I ever talked about everything, especially human trafficking. Cause it's, you know, we have a disconception of prostitution. So I don't necessarily recommend it. it. For me, it was something that I made a choice and it was a conscious choice and I, I went for it. And unfortunately, uh, I am on the other side, but it could have gone the other way. So I'm always saying, you know, don't think that where I am is where you're going to be. It all depends on many things. So do find that they should find somebody they can talk to that they know, they know that it's going to help them out, a therapist or a priest or somebody. And then if they still want to open up in, in public, it is their right. And no matter, like it's never, no, it's not their fault. Nobody deserves, it's illegal. So if they decide because like me, they reach a point that they couldn't keep it as a secret anymore, then they should go. And then, you know what? It takes time, but the, you know, it does eventually eventually it dies down and eventually people start accepting, but it, it's a very difficult people act because I don't, I don't know why people around you act like, 
you know, they get defensive because they should have known. So they act now it's your fault because they don't want to say, they don't want to ask themselves the question, why, why didn't I do something about it? Why didn't I do something protected? So the immediate reaction is to lash out and say, well, you should have done it, you know, or you should have called for help or you should have gone. So that's a normal reaction. And it's no, by no means a reflection of what they did was their fault. It is a reflection of the other people. I think in, in that, what I kind of hear from that is that in terms of a suggestion would be to, uh, it doesn't mean you have to go public, but the, the point is, is not to carry the secret alone right. and not, it doesn't have to be a secret. That's the first part. Tell me how, can you, can you reflect on it, Norma? And, you know, when we talk about carrying secrets, so m- both my wife and I are really, we just don't believe secrets. Don't tell me a secret. I don't want to hear your secret because then I now have a secret and I don't want your secret. So, you know, unless I have a really strong context for it and I'm, and I'm certainly a good ear and, and I'm happy to have a conversation about something like this, but secrets weigh us down. What Secrets eat away at us. And, and the reason I share that or I say that is a preface to you. Can you reflect back and say when you finally said whatever you needed to say out loud about the background, about the story, um, how how freeing was that for you at the, at did you, can you reflect back on it now and go, Holy cow, I was carrying a lot of weight and I finally got rid of it. You know what? Yeah. It's, it's such a different thing. Like I said, I am glad because I wanted to take it back when I said it and I suffered the consequences and they were negative. I wanted to take it back. I wanted to go back to that place, but I am, I'm always going to be affected because it is a person. It's a personal decision to speak, and it's such a secret, and we're not supposed to. And uh, I was always affected by it, no matter what. So I am affected now, as I am when I didn't speak. But the effect now is because I'm being I'm living an honest life, and things are switching around. Now I'm expecting because living with that secret is not being able to set boundaries because you cannot tell people, "Sorry, I'm not comfortable with these because of these." Now people know why I'm putting those boundaries. And it's wonderful that now I'm like, back off. I'm not comfortable with this, right? And, and, and before it was just trying to pretend that nothing ever happened and that I was comfortable under all those circumstances was as, was I was con- going to continue behaving like a victim. I was never going to get to the survivor side. So, and, and of course, it's such a, so I was affected and now I'm affected in a different way. I'm affected because it's growing. I'm affected because I'm getting healthier. So there's always going to be that pushback, but there's absolutely no way I am. There's nothing better to know that the people around me know everything about me. And if they love me and they accept me, it's because it's out in the open. I don't have to be there questioning that the person loves me and what if they knew. And I remember pushing, I don't think I ever had a healthy relationship because as soon as it started getting too close, I wanted to push them away and do things to sabotage the relationship, like either cheating or drinking, because I didn't know how to tell them, I need to tell you a secret and I don't know if you're going to like me, right? So I, it was a life living without intention. It was always just getting very close to somewhere and self-sabotaging because I didn't know. Now it's out in the open. You know, if you don't want to hire me for your company, it's on you, but I don't have to you. And I can ask like, this is what I want. I want a race. I want this. So it is such a wonderful, took a long time. I wanted to take it back so many times. I wanted just to be in the hiding. And now 
I mean, this is the thing. It's gotten to the point that I, and I travel all over the world. Now I, you know, I was in the UN and, and I'm always in big conferences and meeting with kings and prince and prime ministers. And I'm always at the table and I'm usually surrounded at a table. And they're like, yeah, so I'm here as an expert. It's like, so did you go to university? I'm like, no, I'm a survivor of sexual violence and human trafficking. And they, it is such a, I always feel bad now for them, not for myself. Before I used to be embarrassed, like, oh, don't ask me now. I was like, oh, you know, I was like, you're going to ask me. And I'm going to tell you, and you're going to be like the, the look of shock because I am so unapologetic. I stand tall. I'm sitting with, like I said, I was sitting with the ex, you know, prime minister of Iran and, you know, the, the grand duke of Luxembourg and I'm on the, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize and I'm there and I'm like, yeah, I'm survivor, sacrifice and, and human trafficking. And he was like dead silence. And I'm just kind of like, like I told him I graduated from Carver, right? Such a wonderful feeling. But it took years to get there. And I love it. And I thought I am never, ever going back to telling the, the story of why I speak Japanese. It was always that story that I had. Oh, I was a model, which you, was true. I did model eventually in Japan. Because I, but, you know, but it's not how I got there. So I like my story. It's something that I, it's mine. I earn it, except to the version that I created so I can navigate with the world. So they didn't ask me too many questions. You know, it's, it's, these are all such complex issues. And, you know, so for you to take it on is, 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 is really cool and interesting. It was that part. That's not why I wanted you on the show, by the way. What it was actually not until I read your bio and I went, Holy crap, that's this is totally <laughs> off topic of where why I wanted you on the show initially. And, and and I don't even know if I care to get to it. But let me ask you this. You've done this for as many years as you have. Do you feel that you're making a difference? And then how do you measure it? it or, or do you need to measure it? Or do you have a sense of it? What is that, do you think? I mean, I went from talking about it for the first time at a church basement. And we were talking as survivors. I met with a shelter and it was a hush hush. We met at a church basement and it was such a scary thing. We were talking in whispers and we were hugging each other. We cried. And then, uh, and then knowing that a lot of our perpetrators, you know, I met with uh, Rose McGowan, for example, um, you know, we, we, had too much wine at a hotel and we cry because it was so hard. It's like so hard to do the right thing. And we're crying and, you know, and we're drinking in, in, in the people that, you know, especially for somebody like her, it was a very famous person to being at the UN a month and a half ago. So am I making a difference? Yeah. I'm not in hiding at a church and we're not, you know, so I'm invited to the table of the conversation that I am part right? I am part of this conversation. I'm not invisible anymore. I'm not being spoken about because that's what happened. They used to come, we would be at church and the politicians of the, the UN president or any coming and asking us and then going to report to the UN what he found about us. Now I'm invited as a specialist. I am somebody invited because if you're going to fix this, you need our input. And that's where, am I making a difference? Yeah. Big difference. It also changed a big difference that, I mean, that that's what we deserve. We need to be respected. Before we were the untouchable, we were either blurry and that's okay. If that's something that I, like I said, it's a personal choice. If you want for your own, it's a, it's a private thing. If you don't want people to know your identity, go for it. But not because you're not supposed to, it's a shameful thing. So, you know, like I, 
I'm always amazed when I do an interview and it's like, you know, survivors to sexual violence and human trafficking is like a cross, like it's like I said, it's like president of the UN. So it's a changing, absolutely. I'm invited to the table. Do we still have a long ways to go? Absolutely. So that's great. So thank you for sharing that perspective on it. You know, there's been a lot of conversation over the past, you know, couple of years for sure around, I guess you'd call it the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, different than you know, human trafficking, but what do you believe around Me Too? And and this is, to me, is also as a male, a little controversial because of, you know, these stories are 20 years old, some of them, not all of them, but, you know, what really brought this up was a number of prominent people uh, with the Harvey Weinstein, I mean, stuff was, it was happening many, many years ago. And so much is left to memory, and that concerned me. And I'm not saying, listen, we get that Harvey was guilty. That's been proven. I'm not defending any of it, especially when it comes to him. Uh, But there's a number. All of a sudden, it grew, and all of a sudden, there's literally hundreds of men being accused of this. And I'm not defending any of that. But I also go back to a statement that you made, even around when you were kidnapped and, and taken to Japan, is in the trauma of it, there's certain things that your brain does, your mind does, that shuts down. So how accurate is that memory and the risks that men run of women's memory being, I don't know, vague or filtered or whatever that might be. So that's just a long winded way of asking the question of where, what's your view of that given the Me Too well, movement? You know what? Uh, the Me Too wasn't supposed to, uh, you know, to uh, say means to hold men accountable. Mm-hmm. It is no different that, it started as 100% what I did. This happened to me in finding each other. You're not alone. Mm. That's what it was. And me too. Oh, you're That's right. what it's called me too. Thank you. Was, Thank you. That's, 10 years ago, bring it, was, back. it yeah. was for us survivors. Yeah, bring it as back. Survivors. It was for that. And it was to make each other. And just like it, it was. And then all of a sudden it became a, you know, you know, to, to hold men accountable, which it was never intended like that. You know, now. That is 100% because there were so many cases that, and that's what happened. And, and I say that if you, if they had done, if there's so many women at your company in a corporation that are coming with concerns, and you don't investigate it, you dismiss it, you're going to have that problem. So a lot of the problems, and I'm not saying every single one, a lot of the problem is that for so long, companies did nothing. Then when this came, and it was, like I said, Tarana Burke, Burke even says that it wasn't supposed to be like that. It's not a movement. It's It was for survivors, and that's what we did. I did, once I found my survivor sisters that I used to go, and we found each other. It was such a healing thing, healing place. That's what I needed. There was absolutely nobody in the world that will make me feel better about what happened than finding somebody else who had the same thing. And we sat and make each other feel we're not alone. I didn't imagine things. So that's what it was in me too. And it became such a thing. Like I said, I sometimes take a step back because I have to take, I'm not an expert and of everything in that. I see it and I'm reading and try to learn, but it was never. A lot of it is companies deny it. and. I mean, that's the aftermath. So do your work, do better. If you want this to end, if there's a concern, and I'm not saying that everybody should be, but at least now it's treated like, you know, oh, I have to investigate. I'm like, sorry, but that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe it's not going to turn into be anything, but at least do the investigation. It is not such a, oh, you know, what an inconvenience, right? 
and, and that's where a lot of it is such a, I always think I don't go with, you know, it happened. I always think it's like, let, let them do their job, let people investigate, let the company, the police investigate. And, uh, I mean, it's out in the open, at least what I like. I mean, it went from one side to another, right? That, you know, a lot of men were afraid of being alone when when with the women. But, you know, it would never compare to actually happening and nobody caring to, I'm afraid that I'm going to, like, you can never compare. And I'm not saying that one is better than another. Like somewhere when there's a shift, there's always a consequence, unfortunately. Now, I wish there was a way that we can get it better. We can actually uh, make sure that the sexual assault doesn't happen or harassment doesn't happen. Because even when I came to Canada, and I can tell you that human trafficking ended, but I went back to university and I graduated with honors. Um, you know, and, and one of the teachers was my first, uh, gave me a reference letter and I was so excited. I was like, I, I, I master English. I graduated with a 3.4 GPA and I got a, the J, uh, Jason Lang scholarship. And I went into my first job in one of my, and I went into sales and one of the, one of my um, clients put his hand on my, on my leg and said, well, if you want me to buy a big page on your magazine. And I cried, I cried and cried. And I was like, does it ever end? Yes, it's not rape, yes, it's not human trafficking. But I graduated with honors. I was the best of the best in that field at that moment, I knew my product. And it was something, and I remember going to my my teacher in saying that's at ever end he's like it doesn't there's always going to be some degree of other now that is awful that is awful that it happens that is awful that i went to my boss and said just flirt he's okay he's harmless just keep but every single time now maybe is because of my history or maybe not maybe it's everything but every single time i love the workforce completely because i was so uncomfortable that i was always expected to flirt and it's not a compliment and he was always checking, having that, that, you know, and I was single immigrant. So it's like a radar saying, hey, take advantage. Right. But always having to check that I wasn't that I was attractive enough because my job required to be well put together, but also not showing enough because I didn't want it to be my fault. It distracted me from growing as a person in terms of my job description. I spent so much time checking myself. Okay, little pumps, you know, not the high heels, just to let, you know, it was just, just, and that's what even sexual harassment is about because, you know, shouldn't be a real requirement. It is, it distracts us from growth. So when I see that, I'm just like, just make sure that you don't tolerate it. I'm saying that they should go to jail, but it shouldn't be accepted. It shouldn't be like, he's harmless. You know? I just came to a question I'm going to ask you in a minute, but you know, it's, so my wife, Stephanie, who you've not met, but you'll meet her one day, she actually excelled in a world of being a coach in predominantly, no, all male sport in the world of hockey and, and other sports. So she actually built a career working for the Edmonton Oilers, built a career uh, working for St. Louis Blues, but she was female in an all-male world. And, and in some cases... In some cases, she was the first female to to achieve some results. So living in that world as a female, actually, you know, she created a way to a be and exist in there and, and do it and flourish and have fun and all the rest of it. 
that's only to say that, you know, women go into certain circumstances where they're women, they're in a world of men. I think it's easy to say, well, men are men and they're going to do what they're doing. Okay. You should flirt. You should do this. You should do that. Whatever that story is. But I'm going to ask a different question that just occurred to me when you were talking. And I've never asked this question. I don't think. Do women ever get pissed off at other women for being the way they are? So in other words, it's easy to blame men. It's easy to, you know, I don't even know if blame is the right word, but you know, do women ever look at other women and go quit being that way? Like, what is the, what is the debate there? Like it, is, is there one? It's consent. Consent. Mm -hmm. It's about if the person is comfortable talking like that. I mean, I have, uh, I have a friend that is like, wow, like that mouth and she's the one that brings it on. But if she's comfortable and she, it cracks her up and I just shake my head. I was like, I'm walking away. But the wonderful thing is she's okay with it. She just absolutely, but if it's your requirement because you want to be accepted and you want to be promoted and it's not like, it's about consent. Some women are so comfortable. And I think if, you know, like, I'm like, you go girl. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, I am all about, but if it's really who you are and you, that's who you want and how you express yourself, clothing, no clothing. It is about not a requirement for your job because the man that is making the decision is making the calls, but it's your choice. Like take it or leave it. This is who I am. And this is how I talk. And also, also the women should be, you know, not every man is comfortable, right? So you have to get to know each other, mm. get to know each other, become friends, and then see if it's okay. You know how, where is the limit? But it's about like that. Not absolutely, but coming, that person had never met me. Never didn't get to know me. I was his rep. It just happened to your money rep and assume because of the position I'm going to buy and you have to sell. That's where it becomes tricky. Right? So like I said, if, if she's, if your wife is come, like she comes, but they shouldn't assume like, well, this is how we talk, but kind of like saying, and she's, and she's going for saying, you know what? I have your sense of humor. I grab with brothers and it cracks me up refreshing you don't have to filter yourself because but she's not feeling that she has to fit in to enable to continue having your job it's really who she is and, she, and she's comfortable everybody should be allowed i don't get pissed off i sometimes you know when i have my nieces i always ask them is this how you want to be or is this because you want to be more popular because if it's you want to be more popular trust me <laughs> i was like you are not going to care and when you're 30 or 40 right? This is such a, so make sure that it is who you are and what you want to do, but not because you, it's, it's you know, because it's, it's a lose-lose situation when you're a teenager, you either, you know, uh, stuck up or slutty, right? So it's just kind of like, you know, if you do it or you don't, you're damned. So make sure that what you choose is what you want to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, I answered my own question in my brain, which is, I'm just sorting stuff out because this is a really it's an interesting conversation for me. I don't, you know, I don't, I've had lots of conversations around it, but not in a, in a focused way such as this. The realization around all of it is to your point a little bit as well is that how one female may set the benchmark for how she wants to be treated does not, you know, set the bar for every female that's around. So as from a male perspective, and I know, and I mean, I certainly know the answer to that one. So anyways, I, I just wonder from a female perspective is if it gets annoying. So I don't want to go down that path anymore because it's a dangerous path for me. <laughs> but I mean, but men, men itself, I mean, when we put men in the same category of like men don't cry, I mean, it's the same thing. Everybody's different. And we should allow people to decide for themselves, even boys or men, you know. You should know, Norma, I'm, I'm a big cry baby. So 
<laughs> so I, I want to I want to continue in the conversation around you know what you've achieved and can you can you give me a little insight, Norma, into mindset around when you're running? What is going through your mind that in that in that journey that is so long? Like, are you? I would think that running that distance would get a little bit boring. No, because by then you have a purpose, right? I mean, it's a race. The preparation happens way before. By the time you are on the race or the, the project that I am, I already have sorted out. And I'm not saying that things don't pop up. There's injuries, there's things that you didn't anticipate it. But, you know, I always say that uh, adventure begins when everything starts to go wrong. But in terms of, you know, doing a race that long, you know, I'm thinking about what's, I'm staying in the moment, right? And there are times that the miles seemed like, are you serious? Like it's only one mile? Like it feels, it felt like it did five. It's more than stuff. But the majority of the time, am I feeling where's my next checkpoint or safety in terms of the environment? Am I, you know, the Arctic circles, like nutrition and everything was a struggle just to kind of like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom and I got to plan it. It was just, you know, I'm making sure that it's like, I'm getting warm. I'm going to take layers off because if you start sweating, you can fit. So it's such a complex thing it's not just you know like if you train for a marathon but you actually training for a marathon you have to do your rain your training you always have a goal that day it's like it's an easy run it's a short run it's a tempo run so there's different that if you say i'm just gonna randomly go for a run every day for 40 minutes and you have no plan that becomes boring because you don't know there's no plan if you go faster you go slow so the same thing with my races there's always a goal in terms of, you know, nutrition or everything. So I'm, I'm keeping, my mind is busy because I'm trying to maximize and make sure that I don't drop the ball on anything because it could be fatal or it could be disastrous. It could result in a DNF. But there's times when it's just, you know, it's boring. I have podcasts, you know, like if I'm not running, like if I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk for a while because I'm just not in the mood of running. Then I just, you know, get my phones and put a podcast or a book on tape or music or whatever. So I have things that I train with that, you know, like, um, before I went to the Arctic, I was doing 25 miles a day. A lot of it is walking. So it was long and it was dragging a tired. So, you know, so I would just kind of, but train with things that I, when I was at the race, it would replicate and it would send a message of my brain saying, don't panic. You've done it before. Are you still a sponsored athlete? Is this part of your business? Are you a sponsored athlete? Where are you making, where do you, where do you make a living? Let me ask it that way. I I do background. I do acting. I do a little bit commercials, but if you, I actually just saw is it Lucifer? Yeah. And I was like, oh, there I am on the back. I do background because it's easy. I jump in, I, I put a, you know, 12 to 14 hour days. It's, you know, minimum wage, but it just, you know, I can, it can keep me busy, but I can take off. I don't have to say, by the way, boss, I'm taking off. So that's what it keeps me from, you know, gas money. I managed to live my life in a way I, I own my car. I, uh, I live as simple as possible. So my overhead is not too large. My kids, fortunately, I graduated and moved. That was when it was tricky when I had to full work full time. And, um, you know, and then, but now they're gone. So it's just me. 
And the projects that I tend to do, like the Arctic Circle, I funded. And eventually there was a few sponsors. My sponsors would mean we'll give you products, which are expensive. You know, if you are very hot or very cold temperatures, the products can be very, very, very uh, expensive. And that's kind of usually, you know, they send me products. And a lot of it I fund. I mean, I sometimes, um, you know, I... I will fund the project myself at the Arctic Circle and then, you know, book a talk for profit and then pay off my line of credit. So I do a lot of things like that. Like I usually, I break even and that's, but I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm working on book deals and I do have two documentaries. And those are the things that do the majority of when I have a really expensive project, like I'm trying to put a rowing across the Pacific, that's a very, I have to buy a boat. I have to, you know, that's not an easy. And that depends on how successful my documentaries are. Finding sponsors, they can jump in from the beginning saying, let's do a documentary. That's when I can sell saying, this is, and it's about dangerous journey. How do I connect it? Everybody looks at me and said, that's so dangerous. I'm like, you know what's dangerous? Is the people coming from El Salvador to the U.S. Along the way, they will be murdered, a lot of them. They probably will be raped. That's a dangerous journey. There's a journey between one town and another and the highway of tears. That's a dangerous journey just by going from either they have to go on a job interview or finding friends. That's a dangerous journey for a lot of women in the world. What I do is a privilege. So, And that's how I connect things. Yes, it's dangerous, but I'm prepared. But let's talk about the state of the world of so many people around the world. And let's talk about really dangerous journeys. So that's how I pitch my documentaries, because you connect both of them. And um, so that's where the big sponsors come in, you know, a book deal and a movie deal is on the works. And that's what I'm hoping, because it will give me, oh, I mean, if I have able to do all these with very little, Watch me go to the moon. I don't even know. Once I have the money ahead of time and they're going to be, I'll be like, I don't know. Like, just watch me go to the moon. Yeah. Well, the, the, see, okay. So there's where the entry point of where I went when I first heard you on the UN, which was, you know, you're very socialist and, and I'm very, <laughs> I'm, I'm very socially conscious capitalist. So I, you know, my first question would be, okay, well, why the hell don't you monetize this by getting sponsors? So why aren't you pursuing sponsors? Why aren't you going, I'm going to represent this? That's my question as the, as the capitalist. I think that it's, you, you have such a great story, amazing story. You have a huge purpose. I mean, it's socially conscious, like to the nth degree in my world. I'm going, what the hell are you doing, Norma? Like, why aren't you going out there kicking doors down or hiring somebody that can kick doors down <laughs> and raise capital for you so you can get your message out even bigger? Because, I mean, I, I honestly am not such an anti-capitalist. I mean, I do. Like, there's people, a lot of my friends have a lot of money, and I have no problem with that. I have absolutely no problem. I, I mean, like, and I do follow a lot of, uh, you know, the Bill Gates and everything. I'm always, I mean, I'm like, that's fantastic. I think it's wonderful. I mean, yes, there is people that there's the bottom. I do at one point are more connected because I come from there and I do understand that in like, like my kids go to elite schools and their father pays for it. And I'm happy. And I say, just do not, do not look back and say, Hey, just work harder. Open doors, open opportunities. Don't just look at it. Like you got to get privilege and entitlement are completely different. I am a person of privilege. I speak, I live in Canada, even though I'm an immigrant, I speak English. That's a privilege. 
I probably got better jobs than a lot of immigrants just because of that. So that I'm not going to go around just looking at people saying you should have worked harder. I'd be like, you know what? Yeah, you work hard and you're not going to get where I am just because of those circumstances, even though we both arrive as immigrants. Right. So that's where it is a completely different. I don't look down. I don't look like. And sometimes, unfortunately or fortunately, I people at the bottom connect with me more than anything. And I'm like, you know, and it's hard. Like, it's not like, sorry, I'm, you know, like I come so far and I just, it is very hard for me just to go for where the profit is and shorten my, my, you know, in, in limited my, my um, ability to have an impact in the world. So I focus on the things of the majority of the impact. And unfortunately, because of how we view the things, I am not paid accordingly. Right. I would love more than anything if you pay me a quarter. But if I was going like if I was doing it, uh, uh, you know, my advocating or my events where as a lead, as a tennis or. But, I, you know, I could go there and try to make that money or I could continue doing what I'm doing, knowing that it's not rewarded equally. So I made that choice and I'm not saying it's unfair or fair, but not, you know, a lot of people do a lot less than I do and make more. but I. You know, I could try to go there and be less effective or I could continue and hoping that the world catches up and saying, hey, here I am. And if you take all that, because I have to work so hard to do what I do, if you take that away from me, I mean, if you take all that thing that distract me from doing my job, I could be of more impact. And that's where I have people that um, the UN said, let me help you because what you do you, we cannot, you know, we couldn't even pay somebody to do what you do. Like that salary would be too expensive and not as effective. So that's what I have is all these people that are trying to make sure that my message there gets as far as possible. But I, like I said, I would like nothing more, but I am more concerned of doing what I believe to be the most, the, the of most value for me. I understand. On your journey, uh, this many years later, do you feel that you've healed the wounds or do you feel you've, or do you, or is there, or, I mean, do you feel like you're healed the wounds or are you, and, and there's always scars, you know, and I'm not going to assume to know any of this. I'm actually asking the question because I wonder, and, and, and because of work that I've done over the years, you know, we used to do a lot of work with a guy by the name of Dr. John D. Martini. And in, in that work, he looked at everything and, and said, there's always, there's a negative and there's a positive, however you view that. There can't be one without the other, always. So when you look at the journey that you've been on and what got you here, is there a place where you can reflect on it and go, man, if that wouldn't have happened in my life, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I'm not trying to justify it or, or you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, can you, can you look at it that way in, in your healing or, or where are you at in that journey? No, I, I, you know what? I am here because of who I am, not because of what happened. Mm. I, the only reason why I survive and I survive in a way that is, you know, like most people didn't even know that happened to me. I don't think Cheryl even knew when we met. It was just such a something that I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure that anybody should talk about it, that I want to talk about it. But that's because of I do have this personality that no matter how bad it got, I still there was a kick in me that said I do not deserve and I'm going to find a way out. And I kept any, you know, and it was sometimes I'm trying to make it a conscious decision before it was unconscious. It was just like a spiral down and then eventually try to come up. Now it's like from the beginning, I was 
was like, nope, I'm going that way. I'm not. But it is my personality. What I mean, the the the, the powerful thing is those are things I don't want to waste what I wasted a lot of time is trying to figure out why did it happen. And, you know, all that is like, it happens in so many circumstances and, mm. and, you know, and more than anything now, it's just maximize not spending time. Now I do suffer from trauma. Obviously there will be times that um, I'm unable to, you know, manage just because there's triggers. There are things that happen uh, as I heal and as I get stronger, they, they are as infrequent, but they are things that still shake me to the core. But then I'm, but I'm kind to myself. Mm. That's the difference now. And it's a wonderful thing of being where I am is before I used to spiral down and, and torture myself and self-doubt and self negative self-talk. Now it's just like, okay, let me pull away. And that's why I'm here in Canada. It is just kind of, you know, like I said, I was, I was talking a movie deal in, in Paris and it's such a, a you know, and we had to get there because, you know, they wanted to really get the script in a way that they understood. And it was, I came and I was like, I asked for help. I called my sister and I called my mom and I was like, I need to come home. And I brought my dogs and I'm like, I can do hiking. I'm kind to myself. That's a big difference. Big, big difference. But, um, but I am strong and I am where I am because of me. I don't want to give any, you know, Absolutely. I think there was definitely certain things that make me better. Like I'm such a good adventurer. Like I can go and, and put it up something like I'm going to break the Guinness world record for the world longest triathlon, even though I don't know how to swim and I'm going to swim in open water, 122 miles. That ability to see it and not being afraid and understanding is because of what I went through. Once you have overcome suffering, pain doesn't bother you. It's like, oh, it's painful, but you come from suffering that is a, such a con- and so I can see in, in, you know, I talked with my sister, she's gone to Peru and she's like, but it's going to hurt. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you should be afraid of pain, right? Like it's, it's pain. You're, I mean, we confuse danger with pain, you know, danger with fear. Fear is like, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know. That's fear. And you train for it and you go, okay, let me see. This is what I'm going to do. So, but danger is like, I've been there. That, Danger is completely different than fear. It's like, oh, I got to go because I'm going to die or this is too much. But fear in terms of like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish the race because it's 435 miles. It's okay. That's fear. There's so much about just what you just have said and all of that. So thank you. I'll leave that to the listeners to listen to again. Uh, you Remember, know, fear is not danger. It's a clear distinction. Danger, run away. Fear, uh, go towards it. And Go I, towards it here. You know, and I, and I love the, uh, you know, what you said earlier as well, that, um, you know, you don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out why, why did this happen to me? And why is this? And you just, because really there may not be an answer that makes sense to anybody. And it goes back to a quote. I actually wrote this quote down, which is, and I don't know if it's yours, but it's one that you used and which is, you are not your circumstances. Your current situation is where you are not who you are. It might be a long journey, but if you keep persisting, you will get to the place you deserve to be. And that is me. That is me. Yes, that is true. I, it's true. Um, we all have challenges, right? And, uh, human trafficking is what happened to me. It's not who I am. So mm-hmm. for anybody who said, I can't believe that you're you know, an athlete or you're happily in a place. And I'm like, yes, because I have the ability. I, once I understood that those things are what happened to me, 
it didn't have to define me, then I could just go and pursue the life as I wanted because that's my beginning. didn't have to be the ending. And that's where I think I said it in one conference, that quote that you just said. It's true. Yeah, I, I love the quote. And, and and it's what happened to you. It's not who you are. And it, it, oh, may, it could be. I mean, you maybe know. you're an immigrant. Maybe you have dyslexia. Maybe you're a single parent. Maybe, you know, you're not the, you didn't come from the best family or have a handicap or, a, you know, disability. All those things is where you're starting doesn't mean you're ending. That's your starting point. It just means that maybe it's going to take you longer. Maybe you're going to have to, you know. Like I said, I I never thought I was going to be a professional athlete, but that's where I found myself because I'm like, okay, I, this is where I am and this is where it works for me. And that's where, you know, it's, 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 it's starting point is different than we all have different starting points, but you know, it depends on your circumstances, but the ending point is up to us. Well, there's a lot of places I want to keep going, but I'm not going to keep going. We're going to, I'm going to end up having you back on the show. I'm sure as I often uh, say with my guests and I occasionally do that. So there's a place where I want to go just to wind things down. And, and I, we have some fun with some rap, what I call rapid fire questions just to uh, have some fun and keep you on your toes, Norma. In all of what you've got going on and, and what you're doing, what do you do to look after yourself? So the question I'm going to have for you in these kind of rapid fire, one of the questions I have is what are you reading these days? What's one of your favorite books or one that you often gift? Do you have one? I do right now, actually, uh, my son just gave me his, uh, school books and I'm reading something that is called, it's a psychology book that I find it very interesting. And it's called the boy that was raised as a dog and it's written by a Canadian and he's, it's about understanding childhood trauma. Now, Maybe it's not for everybody, but for some reason, it kind of connects a lot of, I know in, with, by an instinct how it feels to have feel a certain things that are coming from childhood trauma, but reading it, it goes, oh, there's actually what I did to heal myself. It is what I was supposed to do. So he just said, you know, mom, donate them or whatever. They might, um, he was in college in the U.S. And uh, I just opened it and I put him, I love psychology. So that's the one that I'm reading. Cool. Now, it, just a question I meant to ask you a long time ago, but got sidetracked as I often do, is your son, in terms of blindness, what, where is he in sight? Is he, does he retain some sight? Does he... A, a miracle on yeah. He has the vision of a very old person. He's visually impaired. Um, I don't know what's his vision. But he's uh, under certain circumstances. He's he is legally blind. Like if because there's the cones and the rods, he can you know the the light absorption is is where you know he needs a he has a guide dog for mobility. But he very close. He reads like a very old grandpa, and he needs to be very, very close. He, uh, he's missing a lot of details. If you are talking to him, he's not going to know whether you have blue eyes or dark eyes. He just knows you're a man and, you know, but he has to be very close, but he is actually more than anything. The most important is he's gra he's graduating from Emily Carr here in Vancouver and he's a visual artist and he's the first in the history of the school. He applied without me knowing. And he, that's the beauty of not hiding, to just going for things and saying, this is who I am and I'm still going to go for it. Uh, he applied as a, as a uh, you know, regular student. And, and once he was accepted, he's like, oh, I got to let them know that I'm visually parachute because I need to bring the guide dog. And I'm like, are you serious? Like he, He's like, I just wanted to see if I could get in. And yes, he's at the, at the history of the school, the first 
soon he graduates May 4th. Uh, the history of the school graduating with, uh, they went to school with a C and I don't. So there's celebrities. <laughs> well, there's celebrities. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, mom sets a pretty high benchmark for uh, what you take on. So. I think it's a chicken or the egg, but I am thrilled. But I'm more thrilled that, of course, the guide dog is like a lot of the students. She slept through lectures, right? She just, <laughs> I mean, he sent me pictures like there she is. And I was like, that's like a lot of students. I'm more excited about, I'm like, I love you, but oh, she's graduating. And I'm like, let me take her to the spa. We have to do her because she has to walk too to get the, 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 you know, the graduation. And I'm just more excited about her. I love her. He, she's been amazing in terms of he lives independently and, and she has a lot to do with, uh, yeah, the Canadian, the, the guide dog associations are amazing in terms of quality of life. That's so great. Do you have, other than the one that uh, you shared, do you have a favorite inspirational quote that you sometimes lock onto? Do you know what? Um, find a way. Really, like that's really, I mean, it seems simple, but it is very true. Every time, um, you know, I'm frustrated because we tend to focus more on the things that, the, the roadblocks. And it's just kind of, I, I try to just quickly get around it. And if I hear a no, or there's something that is not working is I sit down and it's like, okay, how can I find a way? And it really is about that. We spend way too much time going through. I tried, but he said, no, in the economy and everything. And I'm like, okay, just kind of clear everything and just, there's always a possibility you just have to find a way. And another one that is not mine, but I love it. But it, and it's very true. It's like, it's always like, if you, if you hate starting over, stop giving up. <laughs> you know? Like it's simple, but it's like so many times. Cause I mean, to me, it was about my book. It was like, oh, you know, and I'm like, well, then stop giving up and get it done. And it's so true. If you hate die, whatever it is, like getting into a perfect, you know, job, finishing school or going to the gym consistently, if you don't quit, you're not going to start getting going to the gym uh, again and again. I love See, that quote. I love that hate, quote. I love that too. I think I had it on my phone and it was because I, I love writing, but I hate writing my book. So it's like, if you hate starting over, just stop giving up. Mm, that's so good. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Room, desk, or my car? Yep. Ooh. <laughs> Dad, which one will I clean first? Uh, my room. What's your favorite swear word? Fuck. Yeah, it's a popular one. Yeah, I use them as commas. They're like, <laughs> I do. They're my commas. They're like yeah. you know, between one sentence and another. I can, I can, I can be that way sometimes too. <laughs> what do you, what stands out for you that you're just not very good at, but you do it anyways? Writing. Oh, interesting. Have you got a Netflix thing that you're streaming these days? Favorite? I Yes. Um, I'm frustrated because um, I cannot get it. It's actually Amazon Amazon Prime and it's Bosch. And oh, good it came series. out yesterday. Good and I, series. It's not here in Canada <laughs> and I'm ready to cross the border and watch, binge watch. Yes. <laughs> I watched Bosch. It's a great series. Oh, great I, love series. I love Detective yeah. Dramas. They're my favorite. So, yeah. That's very good. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates? Gee, I have never heard. I've never. You know what? What would I want God to say when I get to the gates? You know, you make me proud. Nice. 
Last question, Norma. What are you grateful for? Oh, I'm grateful that I did not give up. Because mm. my story, where I come from, it's uncommon. It is. I am grateful, as I always am, for my guests on the show. I'm grateful to have met you and uh, been able to hear your story and share your story. And uh, I'm excited to uh, one day have a more conversation with you, Norma. I really appreciate you uh, joining me today and taking some time because uh, I knew this one would go a little bit long because I, I just think it's important and it's an area of interest for me to learn more about. So thank you. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends, as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.